The little town straggling up the hill was bright with colored Christmas lights, but George Pratt did not see them. He was leaning over the railing of the iron bridge, staring down moodily at the black water. The current eddied and swirled like liquid glass. Occasionally a bit of ice detached from the shore would go gliding downstream to be swallowed up in the shadows under the bridge. The water looked paralyzingly cold. George wondered how long a man could stay alive in. The glassy blackness had a strange hypnotic effect on him. He leaned still farther over the railing. I wouldn't do that if I were a quiet voice beside said. George turned resentfully to a little man he had never seen before. He was stout, well past middle age and his round cheeks pink in the winter air as though they had just been shaved wouldn't do what george asked sullenly what you were thinking of doing how do you know what i was thinking oh we make it our business to know a lot of the stranger said easily george wondered what the man's business he was a most unremarkable little person the sort you would pass in a crowd and never notice unless you saw his bright blue eyes that is. you couldn't forget them for they were the kindest sharpest eyes you ever saw Nothing else about him was noteworthy. He wore a moth-eaten old fur cap and a shabby overcoat that was stretched tightly across his paunchy belly. He was carrying a small black satchel. It wasn't a doctor's bag, too large for that, and not the right shape. It was a salesman's sample kit. George decided distastefully that the fellow was probably some sort of peddler, the kind who would go around poking his sharp little nose into other people's affairs. Looks like snow, doesn't it, the stranger said, glancing up appraisal at the overcast sky. It'll be nice to have a white Christmas. They're getting scarce these days. So are a lot of things. He turned to face George squarely. You all right now? Of course I'm all right. What made you think I was? George fell silent. Before the stranger's quiet gaze, the little man shook his head. You know you shouldn't think of such things. And on Christmas Eve of all time, you gotta consider Mary. And your mother too. George opened his mouth to ask how the stranger could know his wife's name. But the fellow anticipated him. Don't ask me how I know such things. It's my business to know. That's why I came along this way tonight. Luckily I did, too. He glanced down at the dark water and shuddered. Well, if you know so much about me, George said, give me just one good reason why I should be alive. The little man made a queer chuckling sound. Come, come, it can't be that bad. You've got your job at the bank, and Mary, and the kids. You're healthy, and young, and, and sick of everything, George cried. I'm stuck here in this mud hole for life, the same dull work day after day. Other men are leading exciting lives, but I, well, I'm just a small town bank clerk that even the army didn't want. I never did anything really useful or interesting, and it looks as if I never will. I might as just as well be dead. I might better be dead. Sometimes I wish I were. In fact, I wish I'd never been born. The little man stood looking at him in the growing darkness. What was that you said? He asked softly. I said I wish I'd never been born, George repeated firmly. And I mean it, too. The stranger's pink cheek glowed with excitement. Why, that's wonderful. You've solved everything. I was afraid you were going to give me some trouble, but now you've got the solution yourself. You'd wish you'd never been born? All right, okay. You haven't. What do you mean, George growled? You haven't been born, just that. No one here knows you? You have no responsibilities, no job, no wife, no children? Why, you haven't even a mother. You couldn't have, of course. All of your troubles are over. Your wish has been granted officially. Nuts, George snorted and turned away. The stranger ran after him and caught him by the arm. You'd better take this with you, he said, holding out his satchel. It'll open a lot of doors that might otherwise be slammed in your face. What doors and whose face, George scoffed. I know everybody in this town. And besides, I'd like to see anybody slam a door in my face. Yes, I know, the little man said. 
impatiently, but take this anyway. It can't do any harm, and it may help. He opened the satchel and displayed a number of brushes. You'd be surprised how useful these brushes can be as introduction, especially the free ones. These, I mean. He hauled out a plain little hairbrush. I'll show you how to use it. He thrust the satchel into George's reluctant hand and began. When the lady of the house comes to the door, you give her this, and then talk fast. Say, good evening, madam. I'm from the World Cleaning Company, and I want to present with you this handsome and useful brush. Absolutely free. No obligation to purchase anything at all. After that, of course, it's a cinch. Now you try. He forced the brush into George's hand. George promptly dropped the brush into the satchel and fumbled with the catch, finally closing with an angry snap. Here, he said, and then stopped abruptly, for there was no one in sight. The little stranger must have slipped away in the bushes, growing along the river bank, George thought. He certainly wasn't going to play hide-and-seek with them. It was nearly dark and getting colder every minute. He shivered and turned up his coat collar. The street lights had been turned on, and Christmas candles in the windows glowed soft. The little town looked remarkably cheerful. After all, the place you grew up in was the one spot on earth where you could really feel at home. George felt a sudden burst of affection, even for the crotchety old Hank Biddle whose house he was past. He remembered the quarrel he had had when his car had scraped a piece of bark out of Hank's big maple tree. George looked up at the vast spread of leafless branches towering over him in the darkness. The tree must have been growing there since Indian time. He felt a sudden twinge of guilt for the damage he had done. He had never stopped to inspect the wound, for he was ordinarily afraid to have Hank catch him even looking at the tree. Now he stepped out boldly into the roadway to examine the huge trunk. Hank must have repaired the scar or painted it over, for there was no sign of it. George struck a match and bent down to look more closely. He straightened up with an odd sinking feeling in his stomach. There wasn't any scar. The bark was smooth and undamaged. He remembered what the little man at the bridge had said. It was all nonsense, of course, but the non-existent scar bothered. When he reached the bank, he saw there was something wrong. The building was dark and he knew he had turned the vault light on. He noticed, too, that someone had left the window shades up. He ran around to the front, and there was a battered old sign fastened to the door. George could just make out the word, for rent or sale. Apply, James Silver Realist. Perhaps it was some of the boy's tricks, he thought wildly. Then he saw a pile of ancient leaves and tattered newspapers in the bank's ordinarily immaculate doorway, and the windows looked as though they hadn't been washed in years. A light was still burning across the street in Jim Silva's office. George dashed over to him and tore the door open. Jim looked up at him from his ledger book in surprise. What can I do for you, young man, he said in a polite voice. He reserved for potential customers. The bank, George said breathlessly. What's the matter with it? The old bank building, Jim Silva turned around and looked out the window. Nothing that I can see of. Wouldn't like to rent or buy it, would you? You mean it's out of business? Ah, for a good ten years. Went bust. Strange around these parts, ain't you? George sagged against the wall. I was here some time ago, he said weakly. The bank was all right then. I even knew some of the people who worked there. Didn't you know a feller named Marty Jenkins? Did you? Marty Jenkins? Why, he... George was about to say that Marty had never worked in the bank. He couldn't have, in fact. When they had both left school, they had applied for a job, and George had gotten it. But now, of course, things were different. You would have to be careful. No, I didn't know him, he said slowly. Not really that. Then maybe you heard how he skipped out with $50,000. That's why the bank went broke. Pretty near ruined everybody around here. Silva was looking at him sharply. I was hoping for a minute maybe you'd know where he is. I lost plenty in that crash myself. We'd like to get our hands on Marty Jenkins. Didn't he have a brother? Seems to me he had a brother named Arthur. Art? Oh, sure. But he's all right. He didn't know where his brother went. It had a terrible effect on him, too. Took to the drink he did. It's too bad and hard on his wife. He married a nice girl. 
George felt the sinking feeling in his stomach. Who did he marry? He demanded hoarsely. Both he and Art had courted Mary. Girl named Mary Thatcher, Silva said cheerfully. She lives up on the hill just this side of the church. Hey, where are you going? But George had bolted out of the office. He ran past the empty bank building and turned up the hill. For a moment, he thought he was going straight to Mary. The house next to the church had been given them by her father as a wedding present. Naturally, Art Jenkins would have gotten it if he had married Mary. George wondered whether they had any children. Then he knew he couldn't face them. Not yet, any. He decided to visit his parents and find out more about them. There were candles burning in the window of the little weather-beaten house beside, and a Christmas wreath was hanging on the glass panel on the front door. George raised the gate latch with a loud click. A dark shape on the porch jumped up and began to growl. Then it hurled itself down the steps, barking ferociously. Brownie, you old fool, stop that. Don't you know me? But the dog advanced menacingly and drove him back behind the gate. The porch light snapped on and George's father stepped outside to call the dog off. The barking subsided to a low, angry growl. His father held the dog by the collar while George cautiously walked past. He could see that his father did not know him. Is the lady of the house in, he asked. His father waved, waved toward the door. Go on in, he said cordially. I'll chain this dog up. She can be mean with strangers. His mother, who was waiting in the hallway, obviously did not recognize. George opened his sample, grabbed the first brush that came to hand. Good evening, ma'am, he said politely. I'm from the World Cleaning Company. We're giving out a free sample brush. I thought you might like to have one. No obligation, no obligation at all. His, his voice faltered. His mother smiled at his awkward. I suppose you'll want to sell me something. I'm not really sure I need any. No, I'm not selling anything, he assured her. The regular salesman will be around in a few days. This is just, well, just a Christmas present from the company. How nice. You people never gave away such good brushes before. This is a special offer, he said. His father entered the hall and closed the door. Won't you come in for a while and sit down with us? His mother said. You must be tired walking so much. Thank you, ma'am. I don't mind if I do. He entered the little parlor and put his bag down. The room looked different, although he could not figure out why. I used to know this town pretty well, he used to make comments. He knew of some of the townspeople. I remembered a girl named Mary Thatcher. She married Art Jenkins there. You must know of the course, his mother said. We know Mary well. Any children? He asked casually. Two, a boy and a girl. George sighed audibly. My, you must be tired, his mother. Perhaps I can get you a cup of tea. No, ma'am, don't bother, he said. I'll be having supper. So he looked around the little parlor, trying to find out why it looked different. Over the mantelpiece hung a framed photo, which had been taken on his kid brother Harry's 16th birthday. He remembered how they had gone to Potter's studio to photograph together. There was something queer about the picture. It showed only one figure. Harry, that's your son, he asked. His mother's face clouded. She nodded, but said nothing. I think I met him, too. George said hesitantly. His name's Harry, isn't it? His mother turned away, making a strange choking noise in her throat. Her husband put his arm clumsily around her shoulder. His voice, which was always mild and gentle, suddenly became harsh. You couldn't have met him, he said. He's been dead a long while. He was drowned the day that picture was taken. George's mind flew back to the long-ago August afternoon when he and Harry had visited Potter's studio. On their way home, they had gone swimming. Harry had been seized with a cramp. He remembered he had pulled him out of the water and had thought nothing of it. But suppose he hadn't been there. I'm sorry, he said miserably. I guess I'd better go. I hope you like the brush, and I wish you both a very Merry Christmas. There, he had put his foot in it again, wishing them a Merry Christmas when they were thinking of dead son. Brownie tugged fiercely at her chain as George went down the porch steps and accompanied his departure with a hostile, rolling growl. He wanted desperately now to see Mary. He wasn't sure he could stand not being recognized by her, but he had to see her. The lights were on in the church, and the choir was making last-minute preparations for Christmas vespers. The Morgan had been practicing holy night evening after evening until George had become thoroughly sick of it. But now the music almost tore his heart out.
He stumbled blindly up the path to his own house. The lawn was untidy and the flower bushes he had kept carefully trimmed were neglected and badly sprouted. Art Jenkins could hardly be expected to care for such. When he knocked at the door, there was a long silence, followed by the shout of a child. Then Mary came to the door. At the sight of her, George's voice almost failed him. Merry Christmas, he managed to say at last. His hand shook as he tried to open the satchel. When George entered the living room, unhappy as he was, he could not help noticing the secret grin that the two high-priced blue sofa they had quarreled over was there. Evidently, Mary had gone through the same thing with Art Jenkins and had won the argument with him too. George got his satchel open. One of the brushes had a bright blue handle and very colored bristles. It was obviously a brush not intended to be given away, but George didn't care. He handed it to Mary. This would be fine for your sofa, he said. My, that's a pretty brush. You're giving it away free? He nodded solemnly. Special introductory offer. One way for the company to keep excess profit. Share them with its friends. She stroked the sofa gently with the brush, smoothing out the velvet nap. It is a nice brush. Thank you, I. There was a sudden scream from the kitchen, and two small children rushed in. A little homely-faced girl flung herself into her mother's arms, sobbing loudly as a boy of seven came running after her, snapping a toy pistol at her. Mommy, she won't die, he yelled. I shot her a hundred times. She won't die. He looks just like Art Jenkins, George thought acts like him too. The boy suddenly turns his attention to him. Who are you? He demanded belligerently. He pointed his pistol at George and pulled the trigger. You're dead, he cried. You're dead. Why don't you fall down and die? There was a heavy step on the porch. The boy looked frightened and backed away. George saw Mary glance apprehensively at the door. Art Jenkins came in. He stood for a moment in the doorway, clinging to the knob for support. His eyes were glazed and his face was very red. Who's this? He demanded thickly. He's a brush salesman, said Mary. He gave me this brush. Brush sales, sneered. Tell him to get out of here. We don't want no brush. Art hiccuped violently and lurched across the room sofa where he sat down suddenly. And we don't want no brush sale either. George looked despairingly at, at Mary. Her eyes were begging him to go. Art had lifted his feet up on the sofa and was sprawling out, muttering unkind things about brush sale. George went to the door, followed by Art's son, who kept snapping the pistol at him and saying, you're dead. You're dead. Perhaps the boy was right. He thought when he reached the porch, maybe he was dead, or maybe this was all a bad dream from which he might eventually awake. He wanted to find the little man on the bridge again and try to persuade him to cancel the whole deal. He hurried down the hill and broke into a run. When he neared the river, George was relieved to see the little stranger standing on the bridge. I've had enough, he gasped. Get me out of this. You gotta get me out of this. Get me out of this. You got me into this? The stranger raised his eyebrow. I got you. I like that. You were granted your wish. You got everything you asked for. You're the freest man on earth. You have no ties. You can go anywhere. Do anything. What more can you possibly want? Change me back, pleaded. Change me back, please. Not just for my sake, but for others too. You don't know what a mess this town is in. You don't understand. I've got to get back. They need me here. I understand right enough, the stranger said slowly. I just wanted to make sure you did. You have the greatest gift of all conferred upon The gift of life, of being a part of this world and taking part in it. Yet you denied that gift. As the stranger spoke, the church bell high up on the hill sounded, calling the townspeople to Christmas fest. Then the downtown church bell started ringing. I've got to get back, George said desperately. You can't cut me out like this. Why, it's murder. Suicide, rather, said the stranger murmured. You brought it on yourself. However, since it's Christmas Eve, 
Well, anyway, close your eyes and keep listening to the bell, sank lower. Keep listening to the bell. George did as he was told. He felt a cold, wet snow touch his cheek, and then another, and another. When he opened his eyes, the snow was falling fast, so fast that it obscured everything around him. The little stranger could not be seen, but then neither could anything else. The snow was so thick that George had to grope for the bridge railing. As he started towards the village, he thought he heard someone saying, Merry Christmas, but the bells were drowning out all rival sounds, so he could not be sure. When he reached Hank Biddle's house, he stopped and walked out into the roadway, peering down anxiously at the base of the big maple tree. The scar was there. Thank heaven, he touched the tree affectionately. He'd have to do something about the wound, get a tree surgeon. He'd evidently changed. He was himself. Maybe it was all a dream. Or perhaps he had been hypnotized by the smooth, flowing black. He had heard of such things. At the corner of Main and the Bridge Street, he almost collided with a hurrying figure. It was Jim Silva, the real estate agent. Hello. Hello, George, Jim said cheerfully. Late tonight, ain't you? I should think you'd want to be home early on Christmas Eve. George drew a long breath. I just wanted to see if the bank is on. I've got to make sure the vault light is on. Sure it's on. I saw it as I went past. Let's look, huh? George said, pulling at Silva's sleeve. He wanted the assurance of a witness. He dragged the surprised real estate dealer around to the front of the bank where the light was gleaming through the falling snow. I told you it was on, Silva said, some irritation. I had to make sure, George. Thanks, and Merry Christmas. And he was off like a streak, running up the hill. He was in a hurry to get home, but not in such a hurry that he couldn't stop for a moment at his parents' house, where he wrestled with Brownie until the friendly old bulldog waggled all over with delight. He grasped his startled brother's hand and wrung it frantically, wishing him an almost hysterical Merry Christmas. Then he dashed across the parlor to examine a certain photograph. He kissed his mother, joked with his father, and was out of the house a few seconds later, stumbling and slipping on the newly fallen snow. He ran up the hill. The church was bright with light, and the choir and the organ were going full tilt. George flung the door to his home open and called out at the top of his voice, Mary, where are you? Mary, kids? His wife came toward him, dressed from going to church and making gestures to silence. I've just put the children to bed, she protested. But not another word could she get out of her mouth, for he smothered her with kisses and then dragged her up to the children's room, where he violated every tenet of parental behavior by madly embracing his son and daughter and waking them up thoroughly. It was not until Mary got him downstairs that he began to be coherent. I thought I'd lost. Oh, Mary, I thought I'd lost. What's the the little town straggling up the hill was bright with colored Christmas lights, but George Pratt did not see them. He was leaning over the railing of the iron bridge, staring down moodily at the black water. The current eddied and swirled like liquid glass. Occasionally, a bit of ice detached from the shore would go gliding downstream to be swallowed up in the shadow.